if you plant a kale plant, you can harvest from that same plant throughout the entire season for mature kale. Um, but baby kale is grown often in trays and it's a single harvest. And so instead of having one seed grow kale for an entire season, you have one leaf coming out of one seed. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Michigan chef and cookbook author Abra Behrens returns to the studio to talk about her third book in a trilogy on Midwestern farming and cooking. Starting first with vegetables, followed by grains and legumes, her new book, Pulp, tackles fruit. Yes, fruit of the Midwest. It is such a great topic. In this episode, we get personal in praising Michigan for its superior apples, incredible blueberries, and possibly overrated cherries. Yes, I did just say that. We also talk about Abra's restaurant at Greener Farm, which is one of my favorite restaurants in the state. I hope you enjoy this episode with Abra Barons. Abra Barons, welcome back to the Taste Podcast. Oh my gosh, Matt. This is like the the reason I keep trying to write books is just so you'll have me back. Oh my, jeez. <laughs> well... I think the last two times I saw you, we, it was on the farm. Yes. It was on Greener Farm where you have a restaurant and you are part of the farming community there. We'll get to that. <laughs> it's just so it's just so great to see you. Likewise. Yeah, it's nice to be back in New York and to see you in person and in, you know, in your neck of the woods, yeah. so, in your context. Well, I grew up not far from your farm and I have such a connection to Southwest Michigan and we talk about it a bit on the show, so it's a theme. But roughage to grist, now pulp, it's been this journey. (laughs) It's been this absolute journey covering Midwestern products in situ, on location. What has it been like, this trilogy that you've written? It's funny. It's a little bit—do you remember that short story in, uh, like, middle school that we all read called Flowers for Algernon? Oh, yeah, definitely. Of course. (laughs) There's a little bit of that. Public school here. Yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah, looking at them on the shelf, it it still feels— so magical that books come together in this way. So many people work on them. Um, and I'm like endlessly grateful to Chronicle and Sarah Billingsley for, you know, understanding these books and wanting to make yeah. them. Um, and then to everybody who contributes to them. But yeah, I mean, the the focus that started with Ruffage was vegetables and then looking at other ingredients and really trying to create tools to help people um, internalize sort of truly how to cook with something as opposed to memorizing a recipe. And so it was a natural progression for me to go vegetables, grains, and legumes, which were a big part of our farm at Grainer. Um, And then, I mean, Michigan, you know, better than most, Mm. is full of fruit. Um, Yeah, I'm biased. I I think there's (laughs) the best apples in the country, and we'll talk about that soon. I have a question. (laughs) But yeah, full of fruit, but also full of legumes. And um, when I remember walking through your fields of wheat. Mm. You were growing wheat like Mm -hmm. a few years ago. Yeah. On the farm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Our grain program. So Grainer Farm is in southwest Michigan. And so we're definitely a part of the fruit belt that's on the western side of the state. And uh, we started as a vegetable farm. Um, Rob and Liz, the owners of the farm, started in 2006 vegetables. And then the grain program sort of came shortly thereafter and is on, uh, we rent just shy of 400 acres mm-hmm. for that, that those crops. So let's zoom out a little bit and, and just talk about farming in West Michigan. I guess for our listeners, I, I'll ramble on about Michigan all the time, but <laughs> from you, a farmer and a, and a chef working there, what is the region like and what what don't we actually realize about Southwest or West Michigan mm. agriculture? Uh, I mean, I think it's diversity 
people are always really surprised to learn that Michigan is the second most agriculturally diverse state in the nation, yeah. second to California. Um, we have a shorter growing season, but we have a lot of diversity in the peninsula. And so, um, you know, the I referenced the Fruit Belt. That's the western side of the state. Mm-hmm. And I think what people don't know about western Michigan, a lot of folks are familiar with Michigan and Detroit and Ann Arbor. And there's a ton of agriculture there, too. There's, you know, I think between just over 1,600 urban farms in Detroit. Yeah. Um, and Vertical, then, small plots. There's all sorts of different styles there in Detroit. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, and a lot of folks who are really leveraging that ag yeah. for really important uh, reasons. And then, um, but the west side is... You know, we're right on Lake Michigan. Um, I think a lot of folks don't realize, you know, you can't see across Lake Michigan. It's a, <laughs> it's it's a giant body of water. Yeah. It looks like the ocean. Um, and just what that coastline feels like. Um, and then once you get inland a little bit, the the land is, you know, very hilly from the glacial curvatures and um, the cool breezes that come off the lake and the extra snow in the winter. It's a really... I really love, I mean, obviously, you know, I love Michigan. I mean, we're talking about grapes. We're talking about apples. We're talking about cherries. We're talking about Mm -hmm. blueberries. Uh, The Fruit Belt, it's real. And your third book in a series, Roughage, Grist, and Now Pulp, focuses on fruit. And you make this statement in the intro, and I I love it because it's it's just a sound statement. And I want to know, why is fruit simultaneously simple and frustrating? Mm -hmm. Um. It's very unpredictable, you know, and so I and there's when I was, you know, kind of puzzling out this book, I was asking folks like, what would you want out of a fruit cookbook? And it was truly 50-50 that people were responding either, oh, I, why would you need a cookbook about fruit? You just eat it simple. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then frustrating is I don't buy fruit because it goes bad before I eat it. Sometimes the strawberries don't taste great and you can't tell by looking at them and things like that. So um, that was sort of the idea behind it. And then for me, the real driving motivation for pulp is that I use fruit a lot in savory cooking. Very cool point. And the recipes in the book are a lot of savory. Mm -hmm. So much savory. 50%. 50%, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the idea. I mean, with roughage, it was here's this like bounty of produce. Here's a lot of different ways to prepare it the same way and just dress it mm-hmm. up with different flavors. Grist and was all about like these pantry staples, grains, legumes, and then different ways to sort of gussy them up throughout the year. And with fruit, the variations are um, one savory recipe and one sweet recipe per fruit and preparation yeah. technique. So similar organization to the previous books. Yeah, you really stuck with it too. And like that's that's just the work that you're going to get in this book. It, it really is full of application. Oh, thanks. Shouts, respect it. <laughs> that okay. means it's done. Let's talk about apples. I've I've tasted apples in, uh, in, in West Michigan. We'll get to that. But also Japan, upstate New York, Washington State, California, all through the East Coast really. There are no better apples than West Michigan. I mean, back me up here, please. I mean, yeah, I love apples. And it's a good thing, too, because apple season, you know, is about what, six, seven months out of the year. It's, yeah. it's a long period it of time. Is, that we Because it will pop apples. up around August. I mean, those mm-hmm. early first picks are tremendous. They are. Yeah. And um, I think that we also have a pretty good range of different um, types of apples. So, yeah. you know, eating apples, baking apples, you know, ton of crab apples and those wild ones. There was a place up uh, in Northport called Kilcherman's that had uh, like something like 200 different mm-hmm. varieties of apples. I think that they have since sold their orchard. Um, but 
yeah, just, you know, the apples have a tremendous lineage. And so it's nice to get to see see some of those trees. Let's get into apples. Is it um, is old growth, does that matter in orchards? And I guess also, is it this lake climate? Why does West Michigan have such a great uh, apple reputation, at least in our minds, but also just the yield is so tremendous? Yeah, um, my understanding of it is that um, I I don't know if the old growth changes the the same way people think about that for vines for grapes. Yeah. Um, you might know better than I do, but I, I don't know. I, I probably not not true. It probably has nothing to do with it. But, but they're old trees, you know. So Jean yeah. Garthy is a legacy tree fruit grower that I interview in the book, mm-hmm. and um, you know the some of the apple trees in his farm he planted with his grandfather. So you know that's getting on um, mm-hmm. in time. And so um, I think that that's part of it. The the egg, the reason the west side of the state has so much fruit, again, is the lake and yeah. the the topography is really suitable for it. It also means that it's not as well suited to other types of agriculture. So, you know, it's hard to grow row crops like corn and soy on particularly hilly areas that mm-hmm. don't get as warm because of the, you know, the way that the weather comes over the lake. So it's really well suited for that. And then once you put that investment in, I mean, he really articulates and some of the other interviews do too, the overhead associated with, because these are all perennial crops, yeah. you know, whereas in roughage, they're all annual. So mm-hmm. we plant them each season, same for greens and legumes mostly. Um, but there's nothing in this book that is a single season. Um we talk about lineage crops. Um, when were these planted? Is do you have an idea of when these, hmm. these apple uh, in in the state of Michigan is? Or do you go back? Do you that I don't know. I should actually look it up about when sort of the apple industry yeah really took hold. Um, yeah, I don't know that, but it's it's definitely been a part of. Uh, let's see. When did Gene's family settle? I mean, it was his great great grandfather mm-hmm. who immigrated and bought land um so I, I mean certainly their house was built in the late 1800s um yeah. so before that yeah so abra what makes a great apple for me it's the tartness um you know i however i'm applying it i i tend towards tart fruits um yeah. and so that nice little bit of tang um that can pair well with things like pork or you know is perfect in a pie yeah. that like cheddar cheese apple together you know all of that that's it's what such I an for. amazing apple ch- uh, cheddar cheese and an apple pie uh that is a midwestern thing i feel is it i always wondered because i remember the first time i read through the fanny farmer cookbook which is yes. i mean i don't know if you're familiar with but the definitely super old school and um i was looking i was like you know, probably ate and wanted to make a pie or something like that. And uh, yeah, it was like serve apple pie with a slice of cheddar cheese. And I was okay. like, what is this? What? That sounds terrible. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, maybe it goes back further than the Midwest. I, I Listeners write in, I'd like to hear. <laughs> okay, we're going to segue to another great uh, a fruit of uh, in the fruit belt of West Michigan, which is the blueberry. And I would like to ask you about the blueberry muffin. The blueberry has been removed from most blueberry muffins that we eat. Mm. So what is your recipe doing right here with a blueberry muffin? So blueberries grow really well near where I grew up, which is near Holland. 
um, really they do well in sandy soil, things like that. And I, so we, it was one of the first baked goods I ever made was a blueberry muffin. And so I have a like soft spot in my heart for them. Yeah. And I also think most blueberry muffins are pretty terrible. Like That's it, what I'm saying. Like they've been removed. Like there usually yeah. is no blueberries in the blueberry muffins. Yeah. Or they're like, uh, they look like a Skittle, like a blueberry Skittle is in there or something <laughs> like yeah. the airport version of a blueberry yeah. muffin. Um, so this is probably a good representation of the culmination of all three books because it's a spelt mm. flower, which I really like for muffins because it's a softer flower. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't tend to get overworked. It has a nice nuttiness to it. And then it's just a really simple batter. I'm pretty sure the batter is adapted from, you know, the joy of cooking at some point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, yeah, just load it up with fruit and bake it. And I just love a blueberry muffin, just yeah. butter on top and... It's just such a great thing to have for breakfast or for whatever. But I, I love their book is organized with batters and bases in the beginning. And you can kind of start with those and then you move into all the different fruits, the categories you're covering, right? Yeah. So in the other two books, there was either like the strong pantry and roughage yeah. or the condiment section and grist. And this is sort of the keeping to that model. But mm-hmm. I'm not a particularly natural baker. And so I've learned a lot from the bakers that I've worked with over the years. Yeah. And this is really, you know, diving into my own. I have like a, a notebook and then also a file on my computer that's like all of the baking recipes that I've absorbed over the years. Hmm. And um, so this is a lot of them. Yeah. Um, and the idea is that most of the desserts that I make for the the dinner series that we do at Grainer and before um, at Bare Knuckle were all fruit-based desserts. So so it's like these are the things that showcase mm-hmm. fruit. So they're a pretty set repertoire. Yeah. Um, and so this is the batter. And you can make it. I mean, and the idea was sort of similar again to the other books. Like if you have blueberry muffins, you could also put cranberries in there. You could yeah. put raspberries. You know, it's like it's interchangeable. Our blueberry season in West Michigan is so short, too. It's true. It's yeah. so short. It's, yeah. it's like six weeks mm-hmm. and then you're done. Yeah. All right. I'm going to quote you. Being a native Michigander, I'm legally required to love cherries. <laughs> Okay, I love this. I agree with it. Like cherries are important, but I have to say I've never had a good cherry experience in Michigan. Is oh, that really? is that bad? No, I mean that's I mean it's again the frustrating side <laughs> of fruit. Um yeah, I I feel tied to the cherry industry because I lived in Northport for so long yeah. that so much of Leelanau County and Grand Traverse County is is cherry production. Um and but it occurred to me, and this is actually one of the parts of the book, um, I wanted to talk about, you know, the scale of farming. And it occurred to me one day as I was driving up there, I don't know if people know that these cherries are not going to like a farmer's market, you know, and and that kind of articulated like there are lots of different cherry industries, um, you know, that you're. And so uh, Abby Schilling, who owns McClug Farm um, closer to where we are, kind of summed it up and she said there's basically three different markets for fruit. There's fresh fruit direct to consumer, which is what she does. You know, they harvest their fruit, they pack it up in a truck, they take it to a farmer's market. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. Or Meyer. Uh, well, that's the second. Oh, sorry. No, no. And so, or to restaurants, she has a right. large like wholesale right, thing. Right. But then the second sort of market is fresh fruit to a broker Got it. that then puts it into a Meyer or, you know, Kroger, all of those sorts of places. But then there's also the 
fruit to the commodities market. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it's a little different than the commodities market for something like, you know, pork belly or soybeans, um, but it goes to a, a processor mm-hmm. and that's what Gene does. So Gene does not store any fresh fruit. It's all of his tart cherries go into tart cherry concentrate yeah. or cherry like pie filling. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then even today I was at, uh, I was running around doing some stuff before coming in here and stopped in at, uh, I had to get some cherries for something later on tonight and the frozen pitted dark sweet cherries in the Whole Foods are from Michigan, yeah. you know, and and that's what it's going to. So that's kind of the other outlet for and it. And that's commodity. That's like uh, bought and sold on a market, right? Mm-hmm. So there's really not a lot of quality. They're not like thinking about organic. They're not thinking about pro- like the actual growing of it. It's truly dipped by weight, right? Yes. The the organic is a separate category. Obvious, separate category yeah. of commodity. Right, um, correct. Right. But the, yeah, they're looking at, it's a volumes game. You I know? just love those Washington State Bing cherries. I just, mm. I grew up, I feel eating those even though we were in West Michigan. I feel like, or maybe later on in, in the East Coast. I just mm-hmm. love those. I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And that's why it's, food is such a beautiful thing that everybody has those experiences with it and you know it's what resonates for you and that's great i love that you dip mac okay so grilled cheese <laughs> but we chi- can agree tart cherries for a cherry pie right we can like- ag- okay thank you you you've made that <laughs> you've drawn that line yes tart cherries from michigan in cherry pie the cherry hut up in beulah mm-hmm. you've been there i imagine I have, yeah. very very cool little place if you're ever up there in the summertime eat a cherry pie so grilled cheese with cherry chutney that's your recipe in that section. Wow, bomb! Looks so good. <laughs> Thanks. It's uh, yeah. So this, the I really love fruit and cheese together, and this was a. I don't know why I felt the need to make a grilled cheese even more decadent, yeah. but it's basically like a grilled cheese that is combined with a like fried mozzarella stick. Uh, uh-huh. And so you like dredge it, pan fry it, and then it has this ground cherry chutney in the center that is just so good. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Wow. And so this chutney you, you make during the season, have mm-hmm. it in your pantry? Yeah. So ground cherries are um, similar family to tomatillos. So yep, yep, yep. Uh, they're a husk cherries, also what they're known as, or Cape gooseberry. Um, and they are not sweet like a traditional gooseberry. Right. Um, they are, or they're, I'm sorry, they're not tart like a traditional gooseberry. They're very sweet. They have like a pineapple-y sort of flavor. And I had never had them before being at Grainer Farm. And then um, we grow them there. And I just really love them because they, they usually come come do kind of towards the tail end of summer. So right as you're starting to want more of those like fall flavors um, and they freeze really well. Oh, cool. Uh, Good to know. Yeah. And you can freeze them in their husk, which uh, I know from experience because they take a long time to husk. And so uh, we don't usually have time. So we just load them all up into Ziploc bags and then come January when we have time, you can de-husk them frozen. Yeah. And then, um, and the berries like are great after they've been frozen too. Speaking of time, do you ever get time off in this, in the winter months? months now that you, you like you're mm. do you do you, th- there's a thought that like there's a season obviously your restaurant is not open year round and your farm is not open year round open meaning you're not selling in your farm store but do you get like an actual downtime in the season yeah you know it's interesting that you say that because i that has been one of the biggest changes at greener is that when i started the farm store was only open from memorial day weekend until the weekend before thanksgiving and now we're open 11 months out of the year um and really trying to provide that option for folks we also and you've been to dinner now at greener um, and the that greenhouse that the meals take place in it's this big glass greenhouse 
house where we have the kitchen and the the dining room, there's grow space on either end. And that additional greenhouse space gives us the opportunity to grow greens in the greenhouse in the winter. So that's how we can have the farm store open. And then we came we actually did not break for dinners. So we... Uh, oh, yeah, you're, you're around there. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, we took a couple of weeks off at the like winter holidays and then came back for New Year's oh. Eve and have been doing it. So Ever since. Now, mm-hmm. I'm going to link to it in the show notes, but you can book uh, a dinner at the farm and we'll get into mm-hmm. some of the guest dinners you're having. But you're close to Chicago. I think that's mm-hmm. the one thing. If you fly into Chicago, how, how do you get to your greener farm? Uh, just 94 all the yeah. way around. And it's about, let's see, I drove, cause I flew out of O'Hare to yeah. get here to New York. And, uh, I think it's like an hour and a half yeah, drive. Yeah, it's really fast mm-hmm. and yeah. you can, it's a beautiful drive and all four seasons, it's nice to just get out in the country and, mm-hmm. and get to you. But your dinners, you're, you're booking them, you're, you're running them every week basically. And you have some <laughs> guest dinners coming up too. Yeah. So we mostly do dinners on Friday and Saturday nights in the greenhouse. And then the farm store is also open on Friday and Saturday. And um, the way that our dinners work is it's, yeah, it's pre-ticketed. So we're not really a restaurant. It's what we call experiential dining. Mm -hmm. Um, You buy a ticket in advance. And then um, through most of the season, you'll do a walking tour of the farm and then land in the greenhouse and have dinner. And it's usually seven courses. We don't release the menus in advance because we're often, it's dependent on what we're harvesting. Um, um, and so they change a little bit and they're, the idea is that they are dinners that are meant to um, sort of express the moment in time that we are in this personal, like this specific piece of land, but yeah. also to hopefully get people thinking about how to use these ingredients mm-hmm. that we grow. Um, so it's a, it's a night out, but it's not super fussy. It's, I, guess. I mean, it's like way chill and cooler, like blue version of Blue Hill, I think. Oh, like, that's nice. It, it, it reminds me of Ben to Blue Hill and just the way that you lead the tour and talk about when we walk the field. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's beautiful to still walk the field and then have your seven courses that you're busy. I mean, you're busy. Those are busy <laughs> nights. <laughs> yeah, they're really fun. Um, I can't remember. I think, were you at one where Lark had to come on the tour, my son? I don't, I never met your son. Okay. So I, I, but I, I did meet some 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 feisty folks from Chicago. <laughs> they were great. I sat next to them. Uh, yeah, there. it's definitely, you know, we're a family farm. Uh, it's, you know, a family that owns it. And then there were a couple where Lark, uh, Eric, mm-hmm. my husband was gone. And yeah. so he came and did the tour. And all of a sudden I was like, there's a lot more people taking videos on this, this <sighs> tour than normal. And it's me just like shoving peanut butter puffs into his it's mouth. It's <laughs> so cute. Oh my gosh. It's, so is, is he getting his, his hands dirty in the farm? Helping yeah, out? Uh, he's not really helping, but he's definitely <laughs> around. He knows those spaces and comes through and yeah, it gets real excited. I love this. (laughs) Now, I know a few summers ago, we sat in a, in a, in round deck chair and had a great interview and I'll link to that. I love that interview. It's, you should definitely read it. Um, but one point we, we talked about was kale and how Mm. kale had been overplanted and overseeded and had really basically the, the 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 reason was is that kale became a meme. It was mm. it was on T-shirts and it was what people wanted to eat. And you made a really great case of how this is actually not the best thing when you overplant mm. based on theme. Now, is that still the case with kale? And I guess the second part is is are we verging? Is there territory where there might be another crop that is getting mm. a little bit overplanted and maybe we should be aware of it as a consumer? Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean. I certainly am never going to say that it's a bad thing to have people excited about something like kale or another vegetable. (laughs) But what was happening was that all of a sudden baby kale was the like hot thing. And so which, you know, 
as we probably talked about on the tour, if you plant a kale plant, you can harvest from that same plant throughout the entire season for mature kale, for like big leaved kale. Um, but baby kale is grown often in trays and it's a single harvest. And so instead of having one seed grow kale for the entire season, you have one serving come out of one seed or like one leaf coming out of one seed. So there was a shortage of kale seeds. I think that that has pretty much been corrected. Um, and there's also been sort of a decline in the like hype around kale. Yeah, so. it's kind of like chilled mm-hmm. out a little bit which has yeah. probably helped like even out agriculture and the demand a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's moved from that excitement to into the mainstream. I think you can still find kale salads on things, which yeah. is great, you know, and that's, that's the best case scenario. Uh, the most recent one that I've heard about with this is cauliflower. That cauliflower has become like quite the, yeah. quite, quite the it vegetable. The ricing of cauliflower, mm-hmm. yeah. um, this, you know, and, and as a green alternative mm-hmm. is part of that, I would imagine. Yeah. It's a big, I think it is a response to some of the gluten-free stuff. Yeah. Um, And then also, I mean, Hetty McKinnon has a beautiful cauliflower steak recipe. And I think that that idea, and and again, I support people moving towards a plant-based diet. Um, I still eat animal products, but but I also think about meals that don't have them. And I I mean, a good salad. And there's a recipe in Pulp for roasting a whole head of cauliflower um, that has a ground cherry like glaze to it. So you like roast it as the whole thing with a little bit of water in the bottom of the pan that kind of steams the inside and outside it's all crusty and then you put the ground cherries in and they burst and reduce down into kind of like a sticky syrup. So you spoon that over. Oh, cool. And then cashews and um, serving it with tomb, which is that like garlicky yeah. uh, Middle Eastern condiment, which I just, oh, I love it so much. Yeah, tomb. Did you pick that up when you were working at Zingerman's? I feel like that was probably maybe something on the shelf. I think I remembered tomb. I don't remember where I first heard it. I think probably the Middle Eastern food in Dearborn and Hamtramck. Yeah, um, that but, makes more sense. Yeah. But then um, there was a place up in, in northern Michigan uh, called Rose and Fern, which has now moved locations. It's called Rough Pony. Um, and they had tomb on a sandwich. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is so yeah. good. Which I feel like is how, at least for me, how recipes are developed. It's like these little things that like yeah. stick in your mind. And I was thinking about this because there's a recipe in the apricot chapter for shattering cheese, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, the Finnish bread cheese wrapped in phyllo dough. And the idea for that with a, like an apricot and herb salad, and that idea for that came from going out to dinner with my friends Carl and Nikki at Kiki's down yeah. in Chinatown here yeah, in New York. Yeah. And that's how they do their saganaki. And I was like, this is so smart and yeah. so delicious. It's good to get travel, right? And like be inspired mm-hmm. as a chef. You get to hear, you get to see, where are you, where are you eating at right now in New York? Anything on uh, your on your plan? or anything you've you've been to? I went to King Street uh, or King King, last night Yeah, yeah. uh, on King Street and it was so delightful and um, the that has a uh, I had also spent a little bit of time at the River Cafe when I was still working in London and just to see how those chefs influence has like spread around the world is so fascinating through Claire and and Mm -hmm. Deborah and also uh, her restaurant Stitching House up in the Hudson Valley I've never been I've always wanted to go I mean it's definitely your shit it's definitely <laughs> your shit. It's such a great restaurant, but it's up in the Hudson Valley, yeah. similar to where you're at, like full of farms. and. Well, and that's the thing. I was thinking about this when I was flying over that um, I, I want to, I spent a little bit of time in Hudson and want to mm-hmm. go back, but about how my husband and I were talking about um, the sort of category of Midwesternness and that, uh, you know, like Kansas and Nebraska and even the Dakotas sometimes are seen as Midwestern states and how for me it's almost like 
there should be a different category for the Great Lakes yeah. states and that we have so much more in common with like, you know, that part of New York on Lake Erie than we do 100%. with Missouri. Even, Culturally, you know? too. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the agriculture coming out of the upstate New York, Hudson Valley, where yeah. I live, it's very similar to where I grew up in West Michigan, but also culturally, mm-hmm. like, you know, dudes growing up in Buffalo, mm. uh, similar style of lifestyle and just... Mm. I feel like there's a tendency to think of New- them as New Yorkers, but mm. I actually think of them as Midwesterners secretly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're just creeping along. I love that. Out. It's cool that you've been up to the Hudson Valley, but um, any other restaurants you're, you're visiting in New York? Uh, let's see. I'm going to, uh, I'm staying not too far from Rest and Daughters, so I'm definitely yeah. going to get a Bialy. Uh, yeah. And then I'm so excited, Matt. We're doing a tavern takeover at um, Gramercy Tavern tomorrow nice. night. So it's like I was there for the first time. Um, our our friend Francis um, yeah. uh, and I went there for dinner in 2019 and it was like, I had like living, you know, finally suddenly like meeting your mentor, you know, or meeting your hero. Yeah. I had always heard about that dining room and had yeah. never been. And um, so now to to get to be a part of it in this way is oh, like so exciting. That's, that's, I mean, it just makes perfect sense that you would <laughs> be linked up with Gramercy Tavern and Mike Anthony, who knows so much about agriculture in the region and just appreciates farming. And is so kind. He's like one of the kindest people I've ever met. And then um, Aretha is the CDC there and um, she's going to handle the menu for it. So I'm excited to get to know her a bit and and learn from her. I love that. All right. I have to ask, we're going to have our final question about everyone knows the show, but Ruffage, Gris, Pulp, this is a trilogy. Is there another (laughs) Midwestern book in you that kind of follows the single passion obsession Uh, model? I don't know. There's nothing, nothing in the works as of yet. Um, Good for you. But (laughs) I mean, take a break. Taking a little, a little breather. But um, the, the thing I've been thinking a lot about is um, again, moving more towards uh, plant-based eating, which for me is not necessarily including, you know, like meat, the meat substitutes or whatever. But, um, so I've been thinking a, a bit about a book like that. Um, I don't know. I, that's, that's about as far as I've gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and then well, the thing that's been really interesting is to, um, what we're trying to do at Grainer is really have space for people to share their stories. And yeah. so maybe thinking about some other projects that would involve, you know, creating a, a space for that or with some other people. But, I love that. Um, are you doing farm camp again? Yes, we'll do farm camp again. Um, Explain they, that because it's the it's so great. It's so cute. Uh, so that's how Greener started. Yeah. Is that um, Rob Bono and Liz Cachelli, the owners, wanted to uh, build a farm camp for kids, and so every year that Greener has been in existence, there has been, and this week it's expanding to five weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's five weeks, ages five to ten. Um, I think there's. I can't remember if it's 30 or 40 kids per session. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's going to be great. And it's it's a fun part of it. So I, at some point, I would like us to grow into adult programming as well. And we did cooking classes for a little while, but we just weren't kind of in the right spot for it. But yeah. now we have a little more space. So Yeah. I mean, farm camp for kid, for adults, like it's like mm-hmm. fantasy camp yeah. or farming <laughs> cosplay. Yeah. I mean, or just putting people to work and just teaching them how hard this work is yeah and that's so cool (laughs) that's the goal for the dinners too is just to have people internalize even just a little bit you know what it takes to bring this food to market and that's that's a big reason why the interviews are in the cookbooks especially grist and and pulp now is um 
you know, like there's an interview with uh, Mike and Pete Lang who own or are managing partners of Mobby Winery up in Leelanau County, which is having its 50th anniversary this year. And um, I was up there at one point when there was a pretty early, very cold frost, like a pretty hard frost mm-hmm. for the end of October, early November. And Pete was in the orchards building fires at the base of the orchards um, or the vineyards rather to... Wow. Um, it's, it doesn't heat the air, but it keeps the air currents moving so that the frost can't settle. It's on more the of fruit. just for flow than mm-hmm. actual heat. Interesting. Yeah, to disrupt the settling. And so, and I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, I don't, I don't even think of wine as like an agricultural product necessarily. I mean, I know we talk about terroir and, you know, yeah. it's this like piece of land in a bottle, um, but the actual hands that go into it and talking with them. And I was like, how many touches does mm. a like, grapevine have before it becomes a bottle of wine and it's something like 15 like physical touches yeah to to get enough grapes to make wine yeah you know it's and, it's remarkable like Lilona county and, and the peninsula is a great wine region there's really nice things being made there again similar to to upstate new york yep. and finger lakes region you know very similar grape varieties um Definitely. in those two areas so yeah yeah um i feel like uh there's like 20 books I feel like you're going to write in your career, but it's <laughs> I mean, good that you're hopefully. taking a break. I, with that encouragement, I mean, that means a ton because you see so many books and you know how much goes into yeah. them. I mean, you've written so many books and um, it's just, it's, but it's so fun. And it's like, what a privilege to get to, to do this work, you know? I so, agree. I try yeah. to articulate that as myself. It, it really is a privilege and, and to be able to focus on a topic and bring it and speak to masses in mm. various forms is real privilege. One more food question. The autumn olive. That was the one um, fruit that I had never heard of. What is that? So uh, I know it as an invasive species. Up That's right. North. right. Um, and so it's, uh, I don't know where it originated from, but um, it is not native to our area, which is not abnormal. Very little is. Um, and so it, but it is spreading. Um, and it is these like little red berries on these kind of shrubby I see trees. them everywhere. Yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. They're kind of that pale green on the leaves. The berries are beautiful. They're beautiful and they look like they're going to kill you. Yeah, they do. You know, they look poisonous. Like, oh my God, these are scary. Especially when they get to be ripe, they get those like, they're like golden starbursts Mm -hmm. on these red berries. Um, They're super tannic. They're really good for like jams and stuff like that. Um, They're good that time of year. And they actually come ripe usually end of or beginning of October. Um, And the branches, because they're so prolific, um, are also good for, I like to use them for smoking stuff or in the wood oven. They have like a kind of an herbaceous quality to them. I never will look at them in the same way. I really, they're, they, I'm just, I've always thought to stay away. And but. they, they smell so good in the spring. Their, their blossoms are yep. like honeysuckle. You're it's right. so strong. All right. I'm going to flip this question. We ask all guests, but now chefs on the Taste Podcast, if you could create a restaurant mm. without the burden of time, meaning you have all the time in the world to actually set this up or the burden of budget, meaning you have an unlimited amount of money to set up the restaurant, to get it going Abra, what would that restaurant be? It's interesting because I've I was thinking about this question with the idea of a cookbook, um, and my answer for that was somehow an interactive cookbook where people could like input all of the things that are in their fridge, and mm-hmm. then we could generate recipes like for them to use. I'm so down up. with that. I'm glad you came prepared <laughs> like, for the, yeah. You came to play with that one. But now I'm on the spot, and I would say you know people often sort of 
ask if they can harvest the produce for their meal. And we <laughs> really, yeah, they do. Uh, and we've never successfully been able to do that. But I'm wondering, it would be interesting. I don't know if this would be enjoyable for people or not, <laughs> but like to do like a day long restaurant where, you know, you sign up. Yeah. You're there in the morning, you're harvesting the greens and washing them and then literally bringing that to the table. Maybe that would be fun. I mean, or have them pull weeds for like seven hours yeah. in the sun, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, I love that idea. No, it's it's really smart. And you could, you know, along the way, really educate. Yeah, that would be fun. I also am now thinking about, um, I have always wanted to do a, do you know this term was sale? W-A-S-S-I-L. There was a great restaurant called Wassail, and okay. I, I'm trying to remember, remind me what the term I don't is. remember all of the details of the word, but it's effectively like um, going into the orchards in the winter and you like cross-country ski and bang pots and pans to drive the spirits out of the orchards. And then so you like, Nordic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You like drink, you know, mulled cider and yeah. eat a lot of cheese um, from what I can tell. Yeah. Uh, and so I've always wanted to do a wassail dinner um, that is like a long, you know, outstanding in the field style table, but in the snow with like everything in thermoses and yeah. somehow get sponsored by Pendleton and totally. they bring and their blankets. Cool yeah. Bits in the cabin with a little bit of like whiskey and mulled wine. Yeah. And everybody's in coveralls, you oh. know, sort of thing. But the problem is we haven't had that much snow. So it's yeah. like impossible to plan because at my luck, it would be like we'd plan this whole thing and then it would just be that like 55 pissing rain. Yeah. <laughs> just muddy. All right. I'm going to see you on the farm this summer. I hope so. I can't yeah. wait. I, and bring your family back to It's always so nice to get to get to. We all love you, Abra. We love you. We wear the, your sweatshirts are like the best sweatshirts, by the way. They're very soft. They're very soft. <laughs> They're high quality. I feel like my my nephew and my mom wear the Greener Farm sweatshirt all the uh, time. Well, Lark is still in the onesie that your mom oh. gave him. Uh, <laughs> I have the, the little tractor on it. And uh, he now uh, can fully say tractor and picks up the book oh, that she gave him. So, I can't yeah. wait. Abra Barons, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks again for having me and for the time always. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.